Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. This rather intriguing title, (laughs) Can You Be One of the 3%, actually comes from a statistic that uh, uh, I think, in fact, uh, Simon, you drew my attention to originally. Um, that it is estimated that just 3% of all the startups in in recruitment in the UK actually manage to build and exit in a successful sale. And so we're going to talk about some of the uh, most common mistakes that I'm often involved in unpicking with people who would like to think they're on a route to a successful um, business exit. Uh, We're going to talk through what buyers and other investors, because it's not the only model, um, look for and with some real life examples. And I also want to highlight to those on the call about um, the data that you need to start gathering much earlier than you think, yeah. <laughs> um, and some alternatives to exit. But I think it's really important just to frame this before we get into the body of it, to say, look, you define your own successful exit from your business. And there are many more ways um, to exit your business um, that can offer, you know, a lot of wealth. They can offer great job satisfaction. You don't have to sell it in a a trade sale. Um, And there's absolutely no shame in you having a successful lifestyle recruitment business. You know, it can provide a, a great income. For me, the job is has always remained thrilling it's so varied you get from a very young you know from very early stage in your career to work with some highly experienced business people or in whatever sector you're servicing um and so you know it's not the be all and end all to sell but a lot of people have heard those stories and they they want to go down that but there are alternatives you can run a business that does good that make people happy, that provides a safe employment for for people for a time, or that just provides you with an income to retire on. This, what we're talking about today is mainly for those people who are looking to create a business that has capital value. In other words, it's got a value other than the fees that you invoice um, that can be sold. And so most of these points will apply to that, but I have to say, a lot of them could be applied equally just to build a good resilient business okay so just to let you know why I kind of feel a bit qualified to talk about this um since uh, since the earth was still cooling I have been working in recruitment about um it's 85 and I joined Hayes before it was even Hayes the recruitment business um and I was really lucky under a period of very high growth to be able to start two very successful businesses under the safety of the Hayes umbrella. 
um, and build those from scratch. One, it was Hayes personnel as it became, um, and the other was Hayes training. And I moved from there to Robert Half International, finance recruiter again. Um, it's a Fortune 50 company, I think still. Um, and I was able to build on a, you know, a, frankly, a bit of a basket case in the north and build it into a very profitable region. And I moved around um, 2000 into the very sexy and different business of statement of works and recruitment process outsourcing. And I did that again from scratch for two further PLCs with considerable success. It's a whole different ball game. Um, and I was, you know, suddenly um, negotiating contracts that generated what you can see there, two million net profit in their first year. So very different kind of sales process. Um, and then much more recently, uh, 2016, 17, I um, joined a business where I was the non-exec and I joined the full time as MD to uh, really push through towards a fairly substantial trade sale. I can't tell you how much we sold the business for, but you can do your own calculations or will be able to after this presentation based on the statistics that are there. And um, yeah, critical to that um, dramatic profit growth was starting a statement of work business. But I'd just like to point out that the figures you can see here, 1.2 mil growing to 4.2 mil is net profit. So you can perhaps imagine how much the sales had to grow to in order to achieve that. Okay, now along the way, there have been a lot of things that I haven't got right and a lot of things that took me a while to learn that I, I want to share with you today. Um, and it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to see uh, if I'd known that sooner or understood properly the impact of my own behaviour sooner, then maybe things would have gone differently or faster, whatever. Um, but when you're in it, it, it's quite difficult to see, isn't it? Um, so for me, this is 35 years has been a very long process of learning and reflection. You know, every day is a school day. Um, and I want to start um, when talking about mis mistakes, about looking at uh, some of the big ones that I can now see I made, and they were what I can only describe as behavioural mistakes. And the biggest, possibly the biggest impact on your chances of building towards a successful exit event are in fact about the leadership's behaviours. So let me just take you through the ones that, that really ring true to me. The first one I recognise, and this is from early in my career, is that moonshot thinking is no replacement for actually planning. So when I started um, to actually run businesses, um, which was in the oh, 1990s, um, there were an awful lot of books coming out about leadership and vision. Uh, so we had um, Daniel Goleman, Emotional Intelligence, came out in 1997 Habits, Stephen Covey, everyone loves that, uh, around the same time. But there was a big theme that business leaders had to have vision. There were a lot of truisms around, like um, leaders do things right, managers just do the right thing, yeah? And that leaders um, were all about charisma 
um, whereas managers were about checking and monitoring. And, you know, I was young and impressionable enough to literally drink the Kool-Aid on this. There's a phrase that still sticks in my mind and it just makes me wince when I hear it. If you can believe, you can achieve. Um, actually, no. <laughs> so this was something I had to learn by basically moonshotting, being charismatic and then not getting the results that I was looking for. The first thing you have to understand is that you need to be both a leader and a manager. In other words, you need a plan to actually affect that vision and turn it into reality. The people need the how, and um, that can get down into some real nitty gritty detail. So if you're talking about being the market leader and having a turnover of a hundred million pounds, whatever, then, you're actually going to have to work out how you're going to do that. Where, what is the headcount and the roles that you will need? And an organogram um, for each of the next three years will put some sense behind your hiring, for example. Um, a budget and forecast, and it goes without saying, um, is it needs to be there so that you can see not just how many salespeople you need, but what kind of non-salespeople you might need to support that. But above all, you need to know that the market exists and who there is to sell to and what's a realistic market share and then go about that in a methodical way. And yeah, it took me a long time to actually get my head around that. So when I finally did, and I think by then I was at Robert Half, um, and I mentioned before that I sort of inherited a basket case of the, the north of um, the country, um, those offices for Robert Half. Um, and they had a really erratic permanent billing and almost no temporary billing uh, through a brand called Account Terms um, to speak of. So, and, and no business, no systems for BD, no processes for follow-up and to keep clients. So all of that detail, managing and yes, monitoring, absolutely key if you're going to achieve the dream. So that was number one. And closely linked to that, um, write things down. <laughs> the idea that communicating something brilliantly, but only verbally, is enough, um, is a way with the fairies. Yeah. Even if you meet one-to-one, -one, you will, I'm sure many of you have found that people have very different recollection of that meeting uh, and what was agreed. And in large groups, there's a common sense that, oh, well, I thought someone else was taking down the detail. So even when people nod and smile at you and even repeat back what they think, you know, they've agreed, unless something's written down, um, very often it won't happen or it may happen in a way that is counterproductive, which can be awkward. So in, in today's recruitment world, there are so many moving parts. There are so many channels of communication that recruiters have to stay on top of. There are um, so many variables. When I look at candidate behavior now, you know, it's much more challenging possibly than it's ever been um, in the past. And so that means that it mitigates against change. So when you've created your, your vision and the plan that goes with it, you've still got to get people to change what they do.
and they're so busy running everything on their mixing desk, if you will, that gravity draws them into carrying on doing the same things. Um, so it's absolutely essential that if you're introducing a new process, that you write down the detail and the dates. That if, for example, you're having discussions with a client about the big stuff, the strategy of their business and the potential for how you work together in the future, write it down. Make sure that your CRM um, is genuinely recording what's in your business. Um, often when I get engaged with a new client, I go and find that uh, the guys are running the business from their mobile phones, nothing's getting loaded in there, and it makes it very difficult to grow a business if you constantly have to go back to the principals, who were, the people who were there at the time. You don't know that that information exists. Um, and that applies across the board. If you have worked out in sales processes, for example, that really work for you, you know, whether they are about your post-placement routines or, or um, how you develop an account once you've landed in there, or how you um, retain, you know, how you um, uh, land and expand, um, those kind of things, then write those processes down so that you can train them out in the future. There's an awful lot sitting probably in the heads of some of your experienced people, um, but it's potluck whether it gets passed on to anybody else. And that is going to slow your progress. Anyone who's trying to hire recruiters at the moment will know what I'm talking about. Um, I also found it really helpful to have written in written form a transparent um, promotion criteria and uh, commission policies. Uh, and you know what we did if there was a dispute about a fee with internally or externally, um, all of those things um, gave people a sense that you know if they could, they, that there was no secrecy around how to get promoted. And I and I'm a great believer in keeping momentum in your workforce that way. Um, so it was popular. Uh, but also, if you're just setting up in business, for heaven's sake, write down what you have agreed you're doing. Who, which directors, for example, if you're in partnership, which directors are doing what jobs? Who's accountable for what? And um, two very important words, shareholders agreement. Big important lesson, particularly during um, lockdown one, a lot of the businesses I know that had thought, yeah, we don't need to deal with that formality because it's not an issue, suddenly found themselves in adverse circumstances in business divorces. Um, people uh, wanted to pull it, react to the lockdown in different, completely different ways. And if you haven't got those fundamentals that don't seem very important at the time, it's messy and it's very expensive. And what that means is you're going to go backwards in your plan of achieving your successful exit. Okay, so here's my mistake number three. Um, trying to carry the whole world on my shoulders. Um, you know, you can run a really successful one-man business if you are your only employee. Um, but leaders who can't look after themselves, um, because if, um, no matter how good the intentions, 
if they can't look after themselves, then they're not going to be able to sustain good behaviors in the long run. And they're not gonna be good managers of people in the long run. So I was genuinely terrified in a couple of situations where I was brought in at the top of an organization. I was terrified that people would think I was just, oh, I don't know, made my money really easily, um, that I was some sort of fat cat who didn't pull their own weight. And if I'm really honest, I also, there was some arrogance in there as well. I felt that um, I was the only one who could do things like I wanted them doing, could do things properly or fast enough. Um, and I was terribly keen to demonstrate that brilliance to people. So, you know, for an extended period, and I'm talking a couple of years, I worked almost invariably an 80 hour week, and that's just not sustainable. And what happens in the end is that you become a poor leader of people. Um, you flake out. And uh, I don't mind sharing with you that I ended up being taken to hospital in a, an ambulance um, because of that stress. That is stress. So um, it's really important that, you're, that if you're a business leader, you can actually see that um, and that you accept help. Okay. Common mistake number four. Money will solve everything. So um, for a long time, I'm not sure if I believed it, but I certainly acted as if I did, that if you just pay people enough, you will do anything. Um, and I meet a lot of very entrepreneurial, very money motivated business leaders who clearly still do believe that. And the answer is no, they won't. And I think there's plenty of um, material and research out there now that shows you that expectations of employees have never been higher. Yep, they want money, they want flexible working, they want structured de ongoing development, they want a fun environment, they want companionship. Work has become kind of the provider of everything for lots of people. And um, one of the impacts that we're seeing now is um, is massive pay inflation in the recruitment industry. So anyone who's there, who's out there trying to recruit staff at the moment will probably recognize what I'm talking about. Um, I have um, been in the position of uh, starting work with someone, looking at their PL and realizing that they were paying out 70% of their net fee income directly to staff. Now that's not a sustainable position. And um, his argument was, look, I've had to do that at the moment. And this wasn't in lockdown one, by the way. I have, I've had to do that at the moment, but it will all write itself when they become more productive. Well, no, it won't. If, they, if you're paying those people X when their performance is X over two, then when their performance becomes twice X, they will be expecting more pay, yeah? So you will not find that people who are over rewarded at the beginning um, sort of suddenly accept that they're going to get paid less as a proportion of their billings, um, except in a very, very short term. So this also applies to issue, uh, issuing equity and options too early in your growth cycle. 
Um, again, I've had to unpick a lot of very, very messy promises where um, because they like them, because they want to be popular, because they um, they want to reward loyalty, business owners have given promises of either shares or share options really soon. And sometimes the business outgrows the people that they thought were quite good at that time. And those people do not have skills beyond a certain level, but they already own a chunk of equity in the business. Very, very difficult if they're no longer suitable for the business. Um, and remember, if they own that equity, they own it even if they're not your employee, uh, employee anymore. So that's a big mistake. Um, and as, as a leader, you have got to create a reason or several reasons for people to stay with you other than the money, because they're not all going to benefit in the same way as you. And um, those reasons need to include things like um, flexible working, personal development and empowerment, um, social purpose. We've seen all of those things. Finally, before I move on to what employers and investors actually look, sorry, buyers and investors actually look for, last one, big mistake, being in your bubble. I would urge you, if you're a recruitment business owners, to make sure you regularly get your periscope up and get outside of your business. Um, do read industry data and sense check it. Um, some owners are so insular that they, they haven't sense checked you know what they're doing um i had a zoom with somebody just um a couple of weeks back who told me that they were exceptional performers but actually their average average net fee income per head was about 70k um in 2019 i'm not going to count 2020 and um he told me proudly we fill one in every four jobs that he's registered with us point out to him that you know industry-wide that's really quite average um in terms of performance so if you don't sense check how you look from the outside um and how you might look to other people you will be very vulnerable to making unwise decisions <laughs> uh, so I, I do think it's important to be willing to take external advice i have um I have some reservations about straight peer-to-peer -peer learning groups because very often those people have no more experience than you do, if you remember, and it's impossible to know whether something that's worked for them is going to work for you. If you've only ever worked in one sector or one company, you in particular need to take those steps. Right, let me move on. And I want to come basically into what uh, buyers and investors want to see. There are five slides on this. So just bear with me. I've tried to break the things into um, general headings, uh, but they are generally quite, you know, quite widely known. These are the things. So first thing, if a buyer is looking, um, the very high on their agenda is the market that you're servicing. Is it sustainable? Um, so is it sustainable and ideally, is it growing? And the more data that you can have about that, the more convincing your sale and therefore the better chance you've got of achieving a higher multiple. But this particularly applies to trade sales where you might get uh, acquired by another bigger recruitment group. They are going to look for 
um, businesses that fit into their portfolio of customers where there's potential for cross-selling um, and um, therefore specialists. Uh, so for example, I ran a social workers, not social care, social workers um, recruitment agency, and that fitted very well with healthcare. And when we sold, we sold to a, a healthcare recruitment group. Um, so it's all to do with multiples. I'm not saying you won't sell if you're a generalist recruiter. I'm just saying that um, there are, there's plenty of data that says that specialists tend to achieve higher multiples. At the end of the day, though, a business is only worth the truism what someone is willing to pay for it. So how else can you affect that um, multiple? Well, buyers and investors really want to see some visibility of where money's coming from. And that's hardest to demonstrate if you are a purely permanent contingent business. Um, so what they want to see is what you might broadly refer to as annuity income. In other words, um, a, a sound basis of long-term temporal contract assignments um, where you can see, for example, where your money is going to come from for the next six months, exactly, you know, who you'll be invoicing, or contracted exclusivity or statement of works or RPO um, deals, where it's actually written into some sort of um, contract. And I don't mind telling you that having been through a um, due diligence process with a buyer um, who was about to shell out many millions of pounds, when they found that we had no formal contract with uh, our second biggest client, the whole deal nearly fell apart. Um, so I go back to what I said earlier about write things down. Now, if you've got that sort of visibility of income, you can create sensible forecasts. And when I say sensible, I mean forecasts that are based on something that's happened in the past rather than just a wish fulfillment exercise. Um, uh, and so if you've got a track record of retainers, for example, that will help a lot. Um, you, you, of course, you can sell a business that is purely perm. Um, but at the moment, there's less interest in those businesses. Um, so they also want to see that uh, no one client constitutes roughly about 10% of your income. I think that's common sense. It, in, you know, anything can happen to that client. We've seen businesses go bust. Um, and of course, we know that they can also decide, hmm, we're spending rather a lot with that agency. We'll bring that function in-house and you've got an awful lot to replace. Um, so I'm a great fan of Statement of Works businesses. I've already explained to you that I've had considerable success. Interestingly, people don't apply the same expectations of what profit you'll make if you're supplying them with a service as opposed to labour. It's harder for them to, uh, to compare those things. What else do buyers and investors want to see? Look, recruitment is a, an asset light people heavy industry, um, despite all the technology. And they are therefore going to have a look at your people. Um, they want to know that the business is not reliant on a few prima donnas. Um, and you might not think they're prima donnas if their behavior is good, but if your business is essentially a few massive billers supported by an army of resources, 
who are fed, you're in that category, yeah? Um, they will also want to know that the business is not overly dependent on you as its owner, because you will be leaving um, if it's a trade sale, um, if it's an MBO, if it's an MBI, and I'll come back to these definitions in a moment. They need to know that there is a strong, supportive management team. A lot of the businesses that I get involved with on a consultancy basis have a huge gap between the owner in terms of skills, capability, track record, and the managers that report to them, who very often are homegrown, have only worked in that business. So do consider structuring a plan to bring these people forward and give them more visibility within the business, more authority, um, and develop them in a structured way. Related to that, um, a big factor in this, a very big factor in the sale of liquid personnel was the learning and development program that I put into place. So that ranged from a really effective, very detailed, bespoke onboarding um, induction, eight-week plan, right through to a management development plan that said, right, this is what a manager does in liquid personnel. These are our routines and processes. These are our standards and norms. Um, and that really helped me to develop a whole raft of people who hadn't previously existed other than as billers, who had a common understanding of what management meant, who applied that um, with some standardization, and we could point to the results. I could also prove to interested buyers that if I hired someone, statistically, they would be putting profit on the bottom line in, um, it was a purely contract business, so in 10 months um, from hire. And that they would also build, you know, typically they would build their first deal uh, by week four. And that I was able to show them how much the learning and development that I put in place had improved those figures. Um, there were lots of other processes that I put in place to uh, support that learning and development. Um, so, for example, they resulted in, um, we, we did contract assignments, uh, they resulted in those assignments becoming 30% longer, despite things we did. Um, and 50% more of our contractors getting rebooked, which is really important because the costs of compliance are so important. Uh, so significant and that ain't going away. So reliable, repeatable hiring performance. And of course, staff attrition has to be reasonable. So um, I was able at that time to show statistically that post probation, um, I had staff turnover of, of 5%. What else do they want to see? I've mentioned before, processes written down and observed um, that contracts and files are compliant and up to date. Oh, please do not be one of those business owners who says, you know what, one day when we've got lots of money, we'll go and make our CRM compliant. We'll make sure that our contracts are good and up to date. We'll make sure that we um, start doing the checks we were always supposed to be doing because it's never going to happen. The bigger your business gets, the, the further away the dream of having a compliant database um, is. Now, if you're in a highly regulated area, you will, I hope, have started doing this from the beginning, but maybe not. Um, and once you hit about you know, 100 staff, you're gonna find it impossible 
to get them to do things compliantly if you've rewarded them for not doing it in the like that in the past. There are a couple of other things that you may not have considered are important to have written down. Um, minutes of board meetings that are sequ sequential and you can see where the actions have been carried out. They were significant in a due diligence process. Your agreements with clients, your own employment contracts, really important. Um, your, your candidate files need to be up to date. And if you're nodding thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm fine on that front, I'm, you know, I only place contractors, then two, two questions. Are you doing, are you applying key information documents? And have you got opt-out notices? And if you're thinking, oh, I'm not even sure what those are, then you haven't got a compliant database. So are we going to go back through, if you're a 10 year old business? No, they're probably gonna go back three years. But all the improvements that you as a management team have made are really helpful to document. So you can't do that if you don't start from the beginning. Nobody wants to buy a business where there are um, sort of endless liabilities. And that means that if you've got weak employment contracts for your end staff, for example, you could be liable to claims in the future. Uh, you could be vulnerable to um, having people steal your business if the restrictive covenants aren't strong enough and so on. Um, if you have taken a high risk approach to IR35, that is a liability that no buyer is really going to want to take on. Okay, and the risk. So very quickly, they want to see that you've managed cash well, um, obviously that you, you credit check new clients and you manage debt well, but you don't get a lot of bad debt. Reasonable staff attrition. Um, on my experience, that seems to be a figure, seems to be around 20% if you can do, I mean, that's an acceptable figure to say, look, actually we've got this under control. Um, a distinctive brand, which is recognized and has a value. That doesn't need to be unique. It does need to be distinctive and uniform in the way you deliver it, yeah? Um, they like to see marketing, but what they really want to see is the results you get from your marketing. So think about the KPIs. Um, those will include, of course, um, stuff like uh, your average visits to your website, unique users, um, the level of engagement you get on LinkedIn, how big your mailing list is, and so forth, yeah? How much consent you've got. Um, outperforming a valid competitor, don't obsess about competitors, do um, track those that really are valid competitors and see how, you're, how you, they're doing better than you, you can learn from that. Finally, nobody's really interested in buying into a business that has been cash stripped and hasn't had the investment um, that it needs, um, whether that's in terms of CRM or offices or staff or marketing support because they know that it's a liability they're going to have to fill. So um, data that you need to be collecting for probably three years before you actually look at um, effect of valuing your business. Um, so financial data, I think I've covered all of those things. What you want to see is three years worth of plotted on a, a graph. Yeah. Um, HR data, uh, though some of those things are not three years worth, but you do want to um, start to measure the, the data that's there. I think that's all reasonably self-explanatory. Um, any 
long-term incentive plans, that's LTIPs, are uh, written down. And um, that if you have had to undergo any, you know, to take part in any disciplinary or grievance dispute processes, that they're all properly documented and resolved. Uh, commercial data. So that includes any independent market data that you can get your hands on that is credible. I have to say it's a lot easier if you're servicing the public sector to get hard data. You can do it through freedom of information requests. You can usually get it um, straight from the public authority um, that you're servicing. Uh, but, you know, recruitment industry bodies provide really valuable data that is good for comparison purposes, will help you estimate a market share, for example. Um, don't rely on hearsay, very important. Um, and then governance. Uh, we want to see uh, your contracts, candidate files, any liabilities and disputed action. Okay, right, I'm nearly at my close. Very quickly, be clear about what, what kind of buyer you're interested in. Some of them are going to uh, want to tie you into an earnout. And that could be for multiple reasons. It could be because they uh, they think the business is over-reliant on you. Um, it could be because they don't actually have all the cash at the moment. Um, and it could be because um, they uh, just want, to, they don't, they're not really got 100% faith in your forecast that you're selling the business on. Um, it makes a big difference if you've got to stay and work in that business for a couple of years or whether you can walk on the day. And it might impact the amount of money you'd be willing to accept. So you're more like, you're, if it's an MBO, um, a management buy out or a management buy in, people know what they're buying because they worked in the business. So there's unlikely to be an earnout for you, but you might not be selling all of the business. So have a think about that. What would be acceptable to you? Um, there are situations where people will sell some equity in their business or take private equity investment. Um, be very clear about what, again, what kind of involvement you're looking for. This can work extremely well if, um, you know, you want a hands-off uh, organisation. That is, but remember, they are going to want their money back with return in typically a five-year cycle. So that can present an awful lot of pressure on you, and it may mean that private equity investment is not right for you. Okay. Then there are buyers who are effectively looking to make a profit by um, reducing the running costs of your business. Now, that sounds bad. It's not. If they can, for example, combine some of the shared services or offices in your business, that could be completely legitimate um, and could work very well. Um, but a lot of the business owners I work with actually have, they want to leave a legacy and they want to be sure that the people they leave behind are going to be safe in their jobs, um, are going to, you know, that the business is going to continue to be run along certain lines. And um, if that's you, then you, you probably need to avoid a straight trade sale or selling all of your equity. Um, there are some sales that leave very poor outcomes and you know what, even if you're not involved, it does actually still leave a bad taste in some people's mouth. So think about planning the right exit for you. There are lots of alternatives. Um, I've mentioned trade sales, 
private equity investment and MBOs. An employee ownership trust is an area that is getting a lot of interest in recruitment at the moment. It's uh, the, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's the John Lewis model, uh, where the um, personal per people that own equity in the business can sell from 60 to 100% of their ownership um, to a trust of which um, they may, may or may not be trustees, um, and all staff become members of that trust for the time that they are in employment. So people can still come and go, they can still get fired, uh, whatever, um, and they are no longer uh, beneficiaries of the trust, but it's the trust has to be shared equally. There's also been um, quite famously Cordant recently, I think about 2017 became a social enterprise. Um, in other words, they snapped the profit that the family were gonna take from the business. They fixed the limit on the pay gap ratio. In other words, the difference between the lowest paid employee and the chief exec. And they um, went public and said that all other profits from now on would go into social programs. Um, so there we go. It's a long road and you probably <laughs> need to get started on the details sooner than you think. Lots of people are very busy at the moment. Um, it remains to be seen what the market and buyers and lenders will have to say about results that happened during 2020 and whether you'll need to effectively start your, your build towards a sale in 2021 instead. Um, but to summarize, start the groundwork early. Make sure that you build a strong business because you won't always be able to control your exit date, particularly if you're looking for a trade sale. Um, and remember, we all know we're very vulnerable to market conditions. So build a strong business rather than a house of cards that's all focused on selling on a, a date of your description. Yeah? Try not to over-reward staff too early and definitely don't go public with your aim to sell too early. It creates a lot of unease, a lot of people who ex have expectations that you're not gonna be able to fulfill. Um, and if you end up giving away too much equity too soon, you've got nothing to bargain with in the future. And very often the amounts that you give away aren't enough to impact people's loyalty or their actions or motivation. And I would say this, wouldn't I? But uh, my final piece of advice is get an experienced guide, uh, someone to work with who has been there before and who can save you some of the pain that I've been through um, and is up to date uh, in this area as well. If anyone is interested in seeing those slides, um, just please get in contact with me um, via alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk and I'll be happy to have a chat. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.